everyone and welcome to Marking the Roll, a podcast for teachers. We're based in the Illawarra, but really it's a podcast for teachers everywhere. We've had listeners from all over the world. We've had a lot from Victoria, a lot from New South Wales and an increasing amount from Queensland. My name is Phil Dye. I'm an ex-teacher, an ex-journalist and a musician, but I started this podcast because I saw a dramatic change in our education system and an enormous amount of teachers leaving the profession. Compared to when I started teaching back in 1978, the classroom situation and the school environment has changed dramatically, and I saw that there was a real need for the voices of teachers to be heard. Last week, you heard the voices of teachers, many of whom had been abused by students, some abused by parents. And we looked at ways that this could possibly stop. It has to stop because the disrespect and abuse of teachers by students is one of the main reasons they're leaving the profession. This week, I planned on continuing the episodes on behaviour, and indeed we will, but I had planned mainly to interview Laura Milkins. Laura is from the New South Wales Department of Education and Training, and she is in charge of the inclusivity policy and the new behaviour policy. Um, That is going to be introduced fairly soon, and also the disability policies. Uh, And I wanted clarification from Laura as to how this was going to affect not just the students, but the well-being of teachers. Now, unfortunately, Laura has the flu, and what we've done is transferred the interview to next week. So we're going to have the interview with Laura Milkins next week, next episode, episode six. But today in episode five, I'll be talking to Ian Luscombe from Behaviability, and he's going to talk about his methods of behaviour management, which won't suit all listeners, I'll warn you now. We're also going to talk to Leah Thomas, a principal of a school in the ACT who follows some of those behaviour strategies. Not all of them, but most of them, and has some pretty amazing results from them. But before we get to Ian, I just want to thank those teachers who messaged or texted um, regarding their experiences, and some of them were extremely sad um, of being confronted by parents in the supermarket, uh, from being abused by uh, students, and how unfortunately it has become so normalised in some schools that uh, it's very hard to break that pattern now. Ian Luscombe runs a behaviour consultancy called Behaviability, and I managed to catch up with him just a couple of days ago. Could you just take us through your educational history? I mean, where did you start? Uh, I wasn't in education first up. Initially, I was um, in business and kind of realised it wasn't particularly my world. Then I uh, left there and did a uh, dip ed, and I qualified as a primary teacher. I did five years of casual teaching, so I understand what that's like for people who are out there doing casual. Then I got a permanent appointment, worked in uh, in special education uh, for about 30, 30 years. The last job I had was principal of a school for children with um, emotional psychiatric problems from preschool to year 12. 
So you've probably seen the spectrum of behaviour and uh, children with a disability as well. Yeah, yeah. Most of the children I've worked with over the years have actually had emotional psychiatric problems. So, so that puts them in the disability category, certainly. The last episode, we talked about uh, student uh, teachers being abused by students and behaviour problems that were really causing teachers to leave the profession. Um, and our research has found that it is the number two reason that teachers leave the profession. Why has this behaviour problem grown so much in the last 20 years? Wow, that's a really good question. <laughs> I, look, I, I'd agree with you too about the behaviours getting worse. Um, teachers are tell me that from the schools that I work in and also from my own observations. And stuff that wasn't accepted or behaviours that weren't accepted years ago are becoming more commonplace. One reason I feel there's probably some societal shifts as well, I guess, but in school, teachers are scared of actually putting limits around children because they're scared of the ramifications of what will happen if they do that. They might be scared or they're not sure that maybe they're lacking confidence in what to do and, and say when a child actually says, no, I'm not going to follow that instruction. Right. And that fear can come from, and it's a legitimate fear too, and I certainly don't blame the teachers for not knowing exactly what to say and do. So if you've given a child an instruction, um, and always make sure whenever you give a child an instruction that it's fair and reasonable, and that takes into account any accommodations or any adjustments that you make for kids' individual circumstance. And I'll actually ask you too, Phil, if you give a child a fair and reasonable instruction, that means they can do it, it's in their best interest, is that instruction optional? No. No, and it, it shouldn't be either because it's been given to, to the child by a caring adult, so it needs to be followed. And that doesn't mean, you know, authoritarian kind of approach, you're going to have to follow this. If it, we, we can't do that. We, we step out if we're feeling that way and we... we, we acknowledge how we feel, but we come from the head when we're dealing with these kids. So you give an instruction that's fair and reasonable, it's not optional, therefore it needs to be followed. Now, often what will happen is a teacher gives a child an instruction, you need to, let's say, for example, put the book on the table. The kid might start getting annoyed with them, starting to get a bit aggressive, being defiant. You can't freaking make me, I'm not going to do that, no way, blah, 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 blah. When it gets to a certain point, what can happen is the teachers might get a little bit concerned or worried that this, this kid's escalating and they get a little bit concerned about this because they might feel that they're responsible for this escalation. They might feel that they might be looked upon poorly by their supervisors uh, or from, from the whole community. So, from, from their parents too? From the parents as well. It could be uh, if a principal's given an instruction, they might think, well, if this start escalating, it would look bad for my school if this child is starting to complain yep. so what they could do is start to change the direction that they gave instruction okay you don't have to put the book on the table you can just leave it on the on the floor i don't want to put it on the floor either i want to put it on blah 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 all right you can put it out wherever you want to so what i've done in essence then is just given that child three instructions which means i've said to him or her that first instruction for you and the second one is optional because you are starting to escalate in your behaviour. Yeah. So so I have inadvertently rewarded that child's threats of aggression or yes. escalation by changing the instructions. It's like saying to them, look, because you're getting aggressive, you're special, you don't have to follow the instruction. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's not a healthy thing 
for, for the children to be experiencing that from the adults, not healthy at all. So what I do when I go into schools is I talk about this model and how we get through this hump where the kids escalate. When they come down again, after the pandemic, if they have an escalation, they have an escalation. We deal with that. We can't reward that escalation by giving into it. It's like a temper tantrum. So you we, don't we offer the options of putting the book on the floor or taking it out of the corridor? No, no. because it was a fair and reasonable instruction to begin with. If the child could not follow that instruction, then it's not a fair and reasonable one, in which yeah, case I'll have yeah, to back, yeah. backpedal. Yeah. So, and so, no, the reason I don't change that instruction too is there's another little diagram I use when I'm talking to teachers. Is like imagine a, um, a vertical line, and that's the limit you have in the classroom. Imagine a horizontal line moving towards that vertical line from the left. That horizontal line is the kids pushing up against that boundary, that vertical line. Most kids go that that vertical line, they stop. You know, they want the teacher to like them and get on well. Now, some kids who have oppositional behaviours, or they're, you know, they're very defiant, what they'll do is I go to that boundary and they push beyond. Now, not a big problem, but if we let that happen continually and over time, you can see what's going on here. That child has just pushed out the boundaries of what we will accept in our classroom. Mm. Then that child has another boundary next time to push against. I mean, part of the definition of an oppositional child is they go to the boundaries and push beyond. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I like to keep it tight. When you give a child an instruction, make it, it's got to be fair and reasonable. You always have to make sure it's fair and reasonable. Then that child has to follow that instruction. That's it. That's why I keep it tight because that line will be pushed out, pushed out, pushed out. And eventually you might get a class or a school from hell. Yeah. So yeah. it's never too late to bring it back, which is why uh, I don't change that original instruction, despite the fact that the child might actually start to escalate. You deal with that escalation, then when the, es when the child is calm again, that's when you do your restorative stuff. Well done, I'm so proud of you. You calmed yourself down, fantastic. That's ma marvellous. Okay, while you were angry then, you were swearing some people, what are we gonna do to make that right? They hold them accountable. Yes, apology, that's right. And you've knocked some chairs over too. You'll have to pick the chairs up, well done. Let's go and see Miss or Sir now, and we'll apologise and, and, and work through that. Then when we do that, I say to the, um, to the teachers, I recommend strongly that the child goes back after they've maybe picked up the chairs or apologised, they go back and they have to follow the last instruction because the last instruction doesn't get lost, even if the child escalates. Do you mean the last or the first? The first, the first actually is the last instruction because right. I don't keep giving more, giving extra. So right. they need to follow that last instruction yep. the teacher gave them. And that way they learn, hmm, I can't get out of following fair and reasonable instructions by being aggressive. And we hold them accountable. Yeah. So you think that, that all of this has developed in the last 20 years because it no doubt starts with parents being scared to um, set boundaries and therefore that's gone on to greater society and therefore the teaching service um, and they're worried about repercussions in the school. Yeah, that would fit in. That that would that's a nice summary. That would fit in. Okay. I mean, the teachers teachers are very caring, very caring people. They're uh, they're lovely people to work with. Yeah. And they they can feel a bit um, anxious about giving a child an instruction if that child escalates because they might feel, wow, you know, that child has a has a disability. That child has a trauma history. If 
what a horrible person am I? This kid, you know, has, has been triggered by me. Does a but does it does a trauma history excuse bad behaviour and opposition? Uh, what I say is the trauma. It's good. To, it, we need to know if the child has a trauma history. It helps explain where the child is coming from, so we can put in some supports to help that child. But we can't use as as an excuse for behaviour. It'll explain behaviour, but it can't be used as an excuse. The child who, even if they have a trauma history, you give a fair and reasonable instruction. If they do escalate, they escalate. When they are calm again, they still have to be held responsible for what they've done. So if they've knocked chairs or tables over, they have to pick them up and apologise to the teacher and go back to the last instruction. Children you know, with trauma, we acknowledge the trauma, but we don't want to empower the trauma. These children are not defined by their trauma. Yeah. They're much more than that. So by holding, helping hold them accountable, we actually make them strong so that they can go into the world and, and face, yeah. face the world. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, many teachers have asked that question about does uh, trauma excuse bad behaviour? And, and it's a good question because if it actually did, then our jails would be empty. Um, because many criminals, or most probably, come from a trauma background. Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. Of course, we show compassion to children that have uh, trauma history and any disability. However, allow that to be the excuse for behaviour. Um, you're putting the implicit message out there that because they've got a certain disorder or you know, certain ethnicity or any other defining or immutable characteristics, that, that there's a lower level of expectation and accountability for those children. And that's not helpful for them and for society. You know, we need a realistic appraisal of where the child, what the child is capable of doing and we assist them to get there. And you do that by holding children, adults, <laughs> accountable for their behaviour. It's an empowering message. We turn them from victims into victors. I love that, turn the, the victims into victors. I, I wish I could claim but... credit for that. Bill actually comes from, <laughs> it comes from Candice... Oh, I've got her name, American commentator. Now, a study that was published in the Sydney Morning Herald, and, and the department knows about this, states that um, 40% of all suspensions and behaviour issues in a school come from students with a disability. Now, with the inclusion policy, of course, students with a disability have to be taught in mainstream classrooms. Um, so... How do they get over this with a policy like that? But that then there's this truth that the teachers told me about last week and the week before about, yes, you know, we love the disabled students. We see that they've had that a hard time, but some of them are antisocial and they refuse to do things and stuff like that. And it causes them to be suspended. So what is not working here? Yeah. I mean, it depends on the disability. It depends on the disability. Uh, it's the behaviour yeah. that's actually causing that child to be suspended. When I was working in the disability sector, and I mentioned this in the last episode, that, um, yes, there were some um, individuals there who could be in a mainstream school and they would not cause disruption. They um, were just lovely, lovely people. Um, and they were capable of doing the curriculum and learning. But there were some who oh, yeah. really, because of their disability... Um, could not uh, be in a mainstream classroom, yet it seems the disability mm. and inclusion policy from the department 
is trying to make these children acceptable in a mainstream school? Some children, mainstream is not suitable for them. It just doesn't suit their needs. Uh, and um, uh, an alternative special ed setting is, is preferable. This is where I would disagree with inclusion for certain kids. If a child is causing that much many problems in the school, the mainstream school is most likely not the right setting for that kid. Of course, all the children in the school have a... They have a right to be safe, don't they? They've got a right to, the right, got a right to feel safe. I'll give an extreme example. Uh, imagine you have a child who turns up at the school, walks around, punches a kid. No reason other than that child was easy to hit, which is what a kid said to me once. That child was easy to hit because they don't need me back. Now, if that kid gets suspended, which is what you would need to do in this case, and then if that child turns up again after suspension and hits another kid, then they'll turn up again and hit another kid. They're having a massive impact upon the school culture and the classes, the children in those classes. So I use this um, little diagram when I'm giving talks to teachers. I draw a picture of a stick figure. So I've got this stick figure in the middle, and that, that's the child with that's highly aggressive. At the moment, a lot of the resources go into helping this kid. I don't have a problem at all with that because we need, do need to help that child. However, I can guarantee if we just take a sole focus on that one kid, the child that's causing the problems, we're missing out on the effect that child's behaviour has upon other students in that, ki- in that kid's classroom or in the whole school. So you've got the one kid in the middle of the stick, the stick child who's the aggressive child. I'll generally draw about three or four little little stick figures. And then I'll say those little stick figures I've just drawn then are also negatively impacted upon by this aggressive child. And you might, there might be three or four of those kids that are on the edge. They can go either way. Without that kid's influence, they're going on, on, the, on the straight path. So that's kind of not taken into account if we have a sole focus on, on the one aggressive child. Also, to the left of that little of that aggressive child, I'll also draw about six or eight little stick figures. And these are kids that are scared, that could be terrified of this aggressive child. Now, these kids' needs are just as valid as that aggressive child who's getting the support. And often these children are overlooked if you have a, have a sole focus on, on the one kid. And usually these children are kind of on the quiet side, a bit more introverted or anxious. So they come to school and it can be actually a terrifying experience for them, which is why some kids, it is not an appropriate setting for a mainstream school. It doesn't mean they can't go back in later on, but in that instance, it's often a special ed setting is a preferable placement for them. They can get their needs met better and it also has a, a calming um, influence on the rest of the school. And that was Ian Luscombe from Behaviability with his behaviour management strategies, which are working pretty well in a number of schools, although there are some people who would not like the inflexibility of those rules, but it's something that um, our society probably needs a lot more of. During the podcast, we always have a brain break or two. Now, a brain break in teaching is where you change the subject that you're teaching. It happens in all areas of education, from kindergarten up to corporate training, where you just have a something different happens in the room, and it 
changes the electrical state of the brain and it means you can get back into a learning state again once that's been shifted and you've had a bit of a rest. Today's Brain Break comes from Brian Thomas, a Sydney-based musician, with his track Fake It Till You Make It.
And that was Brian Thomas, his song Fake It Till You Make It. Pretty uplifting, isn't it? It's the sort of thing you can imagine as a as a film score. You can hear that on Spotify or wherever you get your music. Now, before we get on to the interview with Leah Thomas, I want to tell you a story from my experience. A lot of people think that this um, bending of rules, as Ian described, where he had the the vertical line and the students imagine it's a horizontal line and they push against the vertical line to try and extend the rules to try and get more options and they think that that exists in primary and secondary school but it doesn't it exists in the tertiary sector as well i was working for a private tertiary institution in sydney and it was a bachelor's degree Uh, and it was a 12-week course One student had only come to one week of the 12-week course. Now, according to the rules of that, and even with universities anywhere, you can still pass the course without attending anything. So this student, he attended one. He had to submit a 2,000-word assignment. Uh, He didn't submit that on time. He asked for an extension. I gave him an extension. Uh, And then he didn't submit it again. And I rang him up and said, oh, what's the problem? Can you submit something? And he did submit something. And it was pretty bad, pretty terrible. Uh, And I said, look, uh, he'd had a a couple of issues in the past. I said, I know you've had a a, a tough time. Um, Look, if you can just uh, do some adjustments, do a bit more research, you'll go well with this. Um, So then he contacted the student wellness department of that institution and said that he couldn't do any more work on this. Um, and they phoned me up and contacted me and said, uh, you, you have to pass him. And I said, no, no, no way. And they said, well, what if he submits something else, a different thing? And I said, well, okay, he could submit another assignment. So he submitted something else, which, believe it or not, was completely plagiarised from the internet, word for word, completely plagiarised. So I failed him. I then get a call from the wellness department saying that I can't fail him. And I said, yes, I can. I can fail him. He's done nothing at all to pass this course. He submitted a plagiarised assignment and that's not going to bode well for him when he gets out into the big world. If I pass that student, it wouldn't be teaching him anything about being honest in the workplace. Uh, And the pressure mounted. And I thought, I do not want to work for this organisation. It's not doing that student nor the workplace any favours. So I resigned. And I don't know what happened to that student. Uh, I really hope that no one signed off. And as I was the lecturer, I was really the only person who could. um, But I don't know what happened. So it happens in the tertiary sector, it happens in the secondary sector, where, where rules are extended and extended. And... In this interview with Leah Thomas, you'll hear that as the principal of a Catholic school not dogged by government policies, she can draw some very hard lines. Now, Leah, how in your school are you treating behaviour problems differently to other schools, perhaps? Um, I think so. I think we're probably doing some things that are very similar to other schools. Um, 
But, yeah, in some ways um, we make sure that we always hold the line with behaviour. Being a Catholic school, um, you know, we always hold the dignity of the child um, first and foremost and I think that's probably the case with all teachers. I think we always try to look after, um, you know, each child. We want them to be their very best. We want them to do their very best. Um, and part of that is expecting and knowing that they can behave, um, you know, so that they can behave in a pro-social manner um, because when they get out into society where they're not in school, um, they need to know that. They need to have those skills um, and they need to be able to interact with others um, in, a, in a social and a positive way. Um, so what we do when students come in, not just at the beginning of the year, but at the beginning of every term, we have an orientation program for students where we go over our expectations um, and that's just not around you know, class rules. Um, but we go over our expectations on how students should walk in the hallways, um, on how they should sit when they're um, in um, you know, various uh, learning activities. Um, we are a direct instruction school here, so we also talk about how they should hold their boards. Um, and we practice that um, over the course of the first week just to remind students that this is what we do. It doesn't change. It's the same for every classroom. Um, and it doesn't matter who you have, that expectation is going to be the same. Um, and then we hold students to that. So um, the teacher is always the, the person in charge, you know, so we always say the teacher is in charge of their classroom um, and you need to listen to the teacher's instructions. Um, we talk to the teachers a lot about giving fair and reasonable instructions um, and around, um, you know, if a, if a child, for instance, is having a meltdown, and we know that they do, um, you're not going to be able to give them an instruction at that time um, but at the same time we don't shy away from reasonable instructions that might cause them to have a meltdown. So you know, doing their classwork that we know they're capable of and that they can do and insisting that they do that um, is a reasonable instruction and so then if they you know, flip their lid and throw their board or tip their table um, we'll wait for them to have that meltdown. If we need to come in and you know, support the teacher in whatever way we need to, the teacher will usually alert the um, executive that that's happened, um, or they always do, um, and the executive will come out and, and support the teacher in managing that situation. Um, but then when that meltdown's finished and the student has recovered, they actually have to go back and complete that instruction. So we say, well, the teacher asked you to do this, um, so you need to complete that. Have you found that uh, that overall behaviour in the school in the school has improved since you introduced this this sort of platform? Yeah, we, we have actually. Um, I think um, we it was interesting because we introduced it at the beginning of COVID. Um, um, we practiced, um, you know, giving instructions to each other, um, and then when students started to come back, uh, we had sort of a handful of students, and then it quickly grew. I have to say, we ended up having around 120, 130 students every day. We're not a big school, we're a school with just over 300. Um, so, and so we'd practice on those students who would come back, you know, we, and, and we just tell them to it. And we said, no, this is the instruction or these are the expectations, this is where the boundary is and it's not moving and it, and it will never move. Um, and how often do you have a student who says no to any of those things? Oh, early on we had a lot of students who would say no to it, you know, um, and even little things like, a student, you know, refusing to move 30 centimetres in line, um, you know, or a student refusing to put their hand up. I mean, a simple things that, that they could easily do, um, but it was just that blanket refusal. Um, and it was almost this sort of little power game between, you know, the teacher and the student. And we just said, no, that the, the, 
the request is reasonable. Everyone's having to do it. There's no reason why you can't do that except for the fact that you don't want to right now. Um, and so with some kids, you know, you do have to give them additional time to do that, additional processing time. And, you know, there's some children where we've given them, you know, two or three hours to complete an instruction, but they never get to opt out of it. You know, we never say, oh, that's it, I'm, I'm sick of waiting now. Um, we'll, we'll always hold that line for them. And we found that the more we did that, the more the students realised that the line wasn't budging. Um, and um, and then we had fewer and fewer students refusing. We still do. Look, we still now will have students who refuse um, to follow what's a reasonable instruction um, and students who, you know, will refuse to engage in their learning um, not as often, not not nearly as often, um, but we still do it, and we just still hold that line. And do you think you're known in your district as the school that's perhaps a bit harder than others? Is, is that the reputation? It, it is. It, it's interesting um, because, again, you know, and, and you know, I sit within the Catholic school context, you know, and and we talk about mercy, um, talk about um, holding the child, um, you know, first and foremost, and and wanting the very best for them. Um, but what's actually going to um, support them in being the best person they can be is holding them to those expectations. So so when I talk about mercy, I say, well, is it really merciful for me to allow a child to not learn at all while they're at school because they're opting out continuously? Is it really merciful for me to allow a child to... Um, to be so aggressive and so violent that nobody wants to play with them, you know that. So, so, so when I talk about um, holding that child, you know, in, in front of mind and wanting them to be the best person they can be, um, you know, I often think about the way, you know, I, I work with my own children. You know, I wouldn't let my own children get away with particular behaviours because I know that's not going to be helpful for them later on or even at the time. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so I do exactly the same, or we all do, you know, exactly the same with the students who are in our care at school. And where do you think this oppositional behaviour, which you, you used to experience more than you certainly do now, but no doubt all other schools I know from the feedback from teachers that other teachers have it a lot, where do you think it comes from and, and do you think it's increased over the last, say, 15 years, 20 years? Yeah, look, I... I do think I've seen an increase. Um, I'd, I'd be speculating as to where it comes from, and I think a lot of people do that. We we do see a lot of oppositional behaviour uh, in children who are, who are also diagnosed with ADHD. That they, the two quite often go hand in hand, and and often if uh, you know it's undiagnosed for a long period of time. Um, I think some of it comes from. We, we, I guess we see a reduction in the oppositional behaviour when we start to not let the children opt out. You know, so what we find is if they're allowed to opt out because, you know, someone will say, oh, well, look, they've probably had a terrible morning or, you know, they, they have a, um, you know, they don't have a great home life or, um, you know, well, this is hard for them. So, um, you know, and there's a lot of, I guess, um, you know, good, well-meaning people, I think, who, who want to help the kids. But, uh, you know, what, I guess what it means is that they start to develop this behaviour around being able to opt out. And so, you know, they, they realise that if they say no, um, and they say it often enough, eventually someone's going to give in. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that. There's a, um, uh, Mark Smith, a behaviour specialist, has a phrase, um, abused by the meek. In other words, 
those who refuse to set boundaries, that is a form of abuse as well. Yeah, and, and we do see it even with you know students who are in homes where there are no boundaries. And we know that's not good for kids. No, no. You know, we know it's important for them to you know, have to come home at night. We know it's important for them to sit down and have a good meal, to, you know, learn those niceties as well at a, at a table, um, you know, to be polite, all of those sorts of things. We know, we know that's good for kids. So say a kid uh, it sort of escalates and it has to result, uh, result in, an, in a suspension and then they come back after the suspension and it happens again. What, what happens in that case? Um, oh, we, we do have a whole range of things. So one of the things we do talk about here is that in order for an instruction to be a reasonable instruction, it's got to be something that the student can complete. Um, so if they need to have supports in place, um, we make sure the supports are there. You know, um, you know, whatever's within you know reasonable expectations for a mainstream school because we, we are a mainstream school. So there are times where you know um, I will have to suspend a child. Um, you know, either myself or um, the assistant principal will have a conversation with them. Um, and it's usually around most of the time you're able to follow that instruction or most of the time you're able to keep your cool. Or I don't want you to think about the this time where you've done, you know, you've done the wrong thing or you've broken the school rules or, you know, you've, you've done something that's hurt someone. I want you to think of all those other times where you've actually been able to follow the school rules, you know, where you've actually been able to keep it together, you've been really strong, um, and I want you to focus on that so that when you come back in, um, that that's what's going to be in your mind. So, because we need the kids to to realise that they're capable of good behaviour. You know, we need them to realise that that um, that you know, essentially, they are good. You know, they they can they can make good choices. Um, and so and so when they come back in again, we you know we have a quick chat to them. We say, okay, now. Are you ready? You know, what are you going to do if this happens again? Or, you know, what are you going to do this time? And, and the child, they're usually happy and smiling. They're happy to be back. Um, and they say, yeah, I'm going to, you know, do this or I'll go to a teacher or, you know, whatever it is. And then we take them down to the classroom and we have a, you know, it's the same procedure every time. The child will knock on the door. Um, if they need to apologise to the teacher or the student or whoever it is, they'll do that. And then they'll say, may I please come back into class? And the teacher will always say, of course you can. You belong here. We we want you here, and they'll always welcome them back again. So, um, and that's a big part of it, you know, um, because the students have to feel as though they belong, um, because that's in part that's the social part of them wanting um, to do the right thing. <laughs> you know, if they don't feel like they belong, they become disengaged. You know, what's the purpose of them doing the right thing? So, so we always create this space for them where they know they belong. Um, you know, they are part of us and that they've got people who want them there and who welcome them. And and there is a push in the ACT as well um, to ha- to not suspend students. Um, and, and look, it's, we, we don't want to, you know, if we're continuously suspending a child, then you know, we really need to review and have a bit of a look at what we're doing in terms of supporting the child. Or, or perhaps that, that child isn't suitable to a mainstream school. Well, that's, yeah, and that, look, sometimes that's, that's the case as well. So, you know, you do need to look at what, what is possible. It is an opportunity for the child to reflect on, on what's happened, um, but it's also an opportunity, particularly if it's, um, you know, hands-on or that there's been some kind of fighting or some kind of violence. Um, you need to have an opportunity for, you know, the victim um, to recover as well. You know, so, you know, we wouldn't put two adults back in an office space if they'd had, you know, a fist fight. Um, but and yet we put two children back into a classroom space who have just had some kind of fight. So, so you know we do think that um, 
you know, we, we do need to have that recovery time as well. And I think that's really important. So when you look at it from a, you know, a whole of school perspective, um, you can't keep re-traumatising children who have been assaulted either. We, we look at the rights of children to come to the school and, and even the, the kid who is aggressive has a right, but we often forget about the rights of the other children to exist in a safe classroom and a safe school. Yeah, look, I think, um, I think it is important to, and, and to, I guess to maintain that, um, that space, that safe space for all children. And, and teachers as well. Sorry, sometimes, you know, sometimes the violence is against teachers as well. And I think it's really important for the teacher to know. And from a WHS perspective, you know, we have obligations there as well. So, and just as a matter of that, how if a, if a teacher is abused or, or hit, say, what happens then with the teacher? Do they have any counselling or wellbeing support? Yeah, yeah. Look, we do have counselling available. Um, we do. Um, uh, you know, there's there's sort of immediate pastoral support um, at the time that it occurs, um, and then um, you know there, there is that um, recovery time for them as well. You know, it's important for them to have that recovery time, um, and and then there's um, supports that come in. Um, you know, because quite often the child's you know back in the classroom again. Um, you know, a few days later or a week later or you know however long it is, depending on on what happened. Um, you know, and so it's really important for us then to put supports in place for the teacher um, to make sure that they can continue to work and feel safe um, as well. Yes, yeah. Now, finally, Leah, um, has there been pushback from the community? Do you find that any parents have simply said, no, no, I'm not going to have my child in this school? Uh, yeah, look, we have. Um, really early on, um, we we did have a number of parents who, particularly if their children, other children who... Uh, were the first ones to be suspended um, and also um, parents whose children were suspended for um, non-compliance you know so that sort of ODD they were refusing to move 30 centimetres forward or refusing to put their hand up um, and um, you know follow or follow their teachers instructions and would give them ample opportunity you know um, to follow it before we suspended them uh, and they always had fair warning as well <laughs> um, so yeah we did get a bit of pushback from um, from families around that, but I'd, I'd sit down with them and, and say, well, you know, firstly, violence is one of those things. We're not, we 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 can't commit violence uh, within the school. Uh, so that's that's sort of our line in the sand. If there's any of that, it's always and it's a quick suspension. Usually, it's a sort of one day suspension, and then they come back. Um, and so they they usually support with that. With the non-compliance ones, I sort of say to them, um, you know, if they're not going to listen to the principal. Um, then I can't ensure that they're safe. So they can't be here until they're ready to actually follow instructions and listen to me. Um, because it's only me, it's only, you know, my final instruction, <laughs> I'll give the instruction that the teacher's given. Um, but if they're not following that, then, you know, how can I ensure that they're going to keep other instructions that, that mean they're safe or that other students at the school are safe? And that was Leah Thomas, principal of St Thomas Aquinas School in the ACT. We're at the end of episode five, but before I sign off, there's been some some inquiries as to how you can contact us. There is a mobile phone number, 0481 574 494. I'll say it again, 0481 574 494, but you will get a message. Why? 
because we've answered the phone and sometimes the messages or the callers have been quite abusive. So now we don't answer the phone. You just have to leave a message and we'll get back to you um, as soon as possible. That number 0481 574-494. My name's Phil Dye. You've been listening to Marking the Role. And next week, we'll have our interview with Laura Milkins from the DET. Mm-hmm.